Chapter Three of Midnight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Midnight by Octavus Roy Cohen. Chapter Three. Find the woman. The thing was incomprehensible yet true. Not a single article of feminine apparel was contained in the suitcase. Not only that. But every garment therein which bore an identification mark was the property of Roland Warren, the man whose body leered at them from the floor of the taxicab. The two detectives again inspected the suitcase. An extra suit had been neatly folded. The pockets bore the label of a leading tailor and the name Roland R. Warren. The tailor-made shirts and underwear bore the maker's name and Warren's initials. The handkerchiefs were Warren's. Even those articles which were without name or initials contained the same laundry mark as those which they knew belonged to the dead man. Carroll's face showed keen interest. This newest development had rather startled him, and made an almost irresistible appeal to his love for the bizarre in crime. The very fact that the circumstances smacked of the impossible intrigued him. He narrowed his eyes and gazed again upon the form of the dead man. Finally he nudged Leverage and designated three initials on the end of the suitcase. R. R. W. Roland R. Warren, Leverage grunted. It's his all right, Carroll. But just the same, there ain't no such animal. Carroll turned to the dazed Walters. "'Understand what we've just discovered, son?' he inquired mildly. Spike's teeth were chattering with cold. "'I don't hardly understand none of it, sir. According to what I make out, that suitcase belongs to the body and not to the woman.' "'Right. Now what I want to know is how that could be.' Spike shook his head dazedly. "'Lordy, Mr. Carroll, I couldn't be knowing that.' "'You're sure the woman got into your cab alone?' "'Absolutely, sir. She came through the waiting room alone, carrying that very same suitcase.' "'You're positive it was that suitcase?' "'Yes, sir. That is, as positive as I can be. You see, I was on the lookout for a fare but wasn't expecting one, on account of the fact that this here train was an accommodation, and folks that usually come in on it take streetcars and not a taxi. Well, the minute I seen a good-looking, well-dressed woman coming out the door, I sort of noticed. It surprised me first off, because I asked myself what she was doing on that train. You thought it was peculiar? Not peculiar, exactly but sort of, uh, interesting. I see. Go ahead. Well, she was carrying that suitcase, and she seemed in a sort of a hurry. She walked straight out of the door and toward the curb, and... Did she appear to be expecting someone? No, sir. I noticed that particularly. Sort of thought a fine lady like her would have someone to meet her which is how I happened to notice that she didn't seem to expect nobody. She come right to the curb and called me. 
I was parked along the curb on the right side of Atlantic Avenue, heading north, that is, and I rolled up. She handed me the suitcase and told me to drive her to number 981 East End Avenue. I stuck the suitcase right where you got it from just now. And while I ain't saying nothing about what happened back yonder in the cab, Mr. Carroll, I'll bet anything in the world that that there suitcase is the same one she carried through the waiting room and handed to me. Hmm, peculiar. You drove straight out here, Walters? Straight as a beeline, sir. Frozen stiff I was, driving right into the wind eastward along East End Avenue, and I had to raise the windshield a bit because there was ice on it, and I couldn't see nothing, and my headlights ain't any too strong. You didn't stop anywhere? No, sir. Wait a minute. I did. Where? At the R. L. and T. Railroad crossing, sir. I didn't see nor hear no train there, and almost run into it. It was a freight, and traveling kind of slow. I seen the lights of the caboose and stopped the car right close to the track. I wasn't stopped more than fifteen or twenty seconds, and just as soon as the train got by, I went on. But you did stand still for a few seconds. Yes, sir. If anyone had got into or out of the cab right there, would you have heard them? I don't know that I would. I was frozen stiff, like I told you, sir, and I wasn't thinking of nothing like that. Besides, the train was making a noise, and me not having my thoughts on nothing but how cold I was and how far I had to drive, I most probably wouldn't have noticed, although I might have. Looks to me, chimed in Leverage, as if that's where the shift must have taken place, though it beats me. Carroll lighted a cigarette. Of the three men, he was the only one who seemed impervious to the cold. Leverage and the taxi driver were both shivering as if with the ague. Carroll, an enormous overcoat snuggled about his neck, his hands thrust deep into his pockets, his boyish face, set with interest, seemed perfectly comfortable. As a matter of fact, the unique circumstances surrounding the murder had so interested him that he had quite forgotten the weather. Obviously, he said to Leverage, it's up to us to find out whether the people at this house here expected a visitor. You said it, David, but I haven't any doubt it was a plant, a fake address. I think so, too. Wait here, the chief started for the dark little house. I'll ask him. Three minutes later, Leverage was back. Said nothing doing, he imparted laconically. No one expected, no one away who would be coming back, and then wanted to know who in thunder I was. They almost dropped dead when I told them. No question about it, that address was a stall. This dame had something up her sleeve, and took care to see that your taxi man was given a long drive so she'd have plenty of time to croak Warren. Then you think she met him by arrangement, Chief? Looks so to me. Only thing is, where did he get in? That's what is going to interest us for some time to come, I'm afraid.' 
And now, suppose we go back to town? I'll drive my car. I'll keep behind you and Walters here. You ride together in his cab. Walters clambered to his seat and succeeded, after much effort, in starting his frozen motor. Leverage bulked beside him on the suitcase of the dead man. The taxi swung cityward, and immediately behind trailed Carroll in his cozy coupe. As Carroll drove mechanically through the night, he gave himself over to a siege of intensive thought. The case seemed fraught with unusual interest. Already it had developed an overplus of extraordinary circumstances, and Carroll had a decided premonition that the road of investigation ahead promised many surprises. There was every reason why it should. The social prominence of the dead man, the mysterious disappearance of the handsomely dressed woman, all the facts of the case pointed to an involved trail. If it were true that the woman had entered the taxicab alone, that the man had come in later, and that the murder had been committed by the woman in the cab before reaching the railroad crossing, the thing must undoubtedly have been prearranged to the smallest fractional detail. That being the premise, it was only a logical conclusion that persons other than the woman and the dead man were involved. Interesting, decidedly so. But there was nothing to work on. Even the suitcase clue had vanished into thin air, so far as its value to the police was concerned. That suitcase bothered Carroll. He believed Spike's story, and was convinced that the suitcase which they had examined out on East End Avenue was the one which the woman had carried from the train to the taxicab. There again the trail of the dead man and the vanished woman crossed, else why was she carrying his suitcase? The journey was over before he knew it. The yellow taxi turned down the alley upon which headquarters backed, and jerked to a halt before the ominous brownstone building. Carroll parked his car at the rear, assigned someone to stand guard over the body, and the three men, Leverage carrying the suitcase, ascended the steps to the main room and thence to the chief's private office. The warmth of the place was welcome to all of them, and in the comforting glow of a small grate fire, which nobly assisted the struggling furnace in its task of heating the spacious structure, Spike Walters seemed to lose much of the nervousness which he had exhibited since the discovery of the body. Carroll warmed his hands at the blaze, and then addressed Leverage. "'How about this case, Chief?' "'How about it?' "'You want me to butt in on it?' "'Want you? Holy suffering oysters! Carol, if you didn't work on it, I'd brain you. You're the only man in the state who could—' "'Soft pedal the blarney,' grinned Carol. "'And now, the suitcase again?' He dropped to his knees and opened the suitcase. Garment by garment he emptied it, searching for some clue, some damning bit of evidence— which might explain the woman's possession of the dead man's belongings. He found nothing. It was evident that the grip had been carefully packed for a journey of several days at least. But it was a man's suitcase, and its contents were exclusively masculine. 
Carroll shrugged as he rose to his feet. He turned toward Spike Walters and laid a gentle hand on the young man's shoulder. "'Walters,' he said, "'I want to let you know that I believe your story all the way through. I think that Chief Leverage does, too. How about it, Chief?' "'Sounds all right to me.' "'But we've got to hold you for a while, my lad. It's tough, but you are the person found with the body, and we've naturally got to keep you in custody. Understand?' "'Yes, sir.' It's none too pleasant, but I guess it's all right. We'll see that you're made comfortable, and I hope we'll be able to let you go within a day or so. He pressed a button and turned Walters over to one of the officers on inside duty, with instructions to see that the young taxi driver was afforded every courtesy and comfort, and was not treated as a criminal. Spike turned at the door. I want to thank you. That's all right, Spike. You're both mighty nice fellers, especially you, Mr. Carroll. I'm for you every time. Carroll blushed like a schoolgirl. The door closed behind Walters, and Carroll faced Leverage. Next thing is the body, Chief. Want it up here? If you please. An orderly was summoned, commands given and within five minutes the body of the dead man was borne into the room and laid carefully on the couch. Leverage glanced inquisitively at Carroll. "'Want the coroner?' "'Surely. And you might also call in the newspaperman.' "'Eh? Reporters?' "'Yes. I have a hunch, Leverage, that a great gob of sensational publicity right now will be of inestimable help. Meanwhile, let's get busy before either the coroner or the reporters arrive. The two detectives went over the body meticulously. Warren had been shot through the heart. Carroll bent to inspect the wound, and when he straightened, his manner showed that he had become convinced of one important fact. In response to Leverage's query, he explained. "'Shot fired from mighty close,' he said. "'Sure?' "'The flame from the gun has scorched his clothes. That's proof enough.' "'In the taxi, eh?' "'Possibly.' "'But the driver would have heard.' "'He probably would, but he didn't.' "'Yes.' Carroll resumed his inspection of the body examining every detail of figure and raiment, and while he worked, he talked. "'You know something about this chap?' "'More or less. He's prominent socially. Belongs to clubs and all that sort of thing. Has money, real money. Bachelor. Lives alone. Has a valet and all that kind of rot. Owns his car. Golfer. Tennis player, huntsman, popular with women, and men too, I believe, about thirty-three years old. Business? None. He's one of the few men in town who doesn't work at something. That's how I happen to know so much about him. A chap who's different from other fellows is usually worth knowing something about. Right you are. 
But that sort of a man, you'd hardly think he'd be the victim of... Hello, what's this? Carroll had been going through the dead man's wallet. He rose to his feet, and as he did so, Leverage saw that the purse was stuffed with bills of large denomination. A very considerable sum of money. But apparently, Carroll was not interested in the money. In his hand, he held a railroad ticket and a small purple Pullman check. "'What's the idea?' questioned Leverage. "'Brings us back to the woman again,' replied Carroll, with peculiar intensity. "'How so?' "'He was planning to take a trip with her.' Leverage glanced at the other man with an admixture of skepticism and wonder. "'How did you guess that?' I didn't guess it. It's almost a sure thing. At least, it is pretty positive that he was not planning to go alone. Yes? Tell me how you know. Carroll extended his hand. See here? A ticket for a drawing room to New York, and one railroad ticket. Yes, but... Two railroad tickets are required for possession of the drawing room he said quietly. Warren had only one. It is clear, then, that the holder of the missing ticket was going to accompany him. So what we have to do now is to find the other railroad ticket, finished Leverage dryly, which isn't any lead-pipe cinch, I'd say. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline